Welcome to The Lead, the New Lines magazine podcast. I'm Faisal Yafai, and this is the podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events, and personalities in the Middle East and beyond. Even by the standards of the Eastern Bloc, communist Albania was a particularly oppressive state. It was isolated not just from the West, but from the rest of the communist world. Its dictator, Enver Hoxha, had denounced both China and the USSR for departing from Stalin's vision. Secret police lurked in the shadows and thousands were executed or deported to forced labor camps. My guest today is Leopi, a professor in political theory at the London School of Economics, who spent her childhood under the dictatorship. Her memoir, Free, Coming of Age at the End of History, explores the meaning of freedom through the story of her upbringing during Albania's transition from Stalinist regime to ostensible liberal democracy. Leia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. You were a child under the Enver Hoxha regime. So paint me a picture of what life was like up until the point when it collapsed in 1990. So it was, um, Albania was a very isolated country. It was, as you mentioned in your introduction, cut off both from the Western liberal capitalist countries, but also from the Eastern countries. It hadn't been like that the whole time. In Albania, communists came to power in 1946 with the help of Yugoslav communists, but very soon broke with Yugoslavia for reasons to do with territorial um, questions and questions of ethnic uh, minorities in Yugoslavia and the risk that Albania would be annexed and become a Yugoslav republic. Sought the protection of the Soviet Union, then split with the Soviet Union when the Soviet Union de-Stalinized and... Uh, revisited the cult of Stalin and Albania remained loyal to Stalin and then had a brief alliance with China during the Cultural Revolution and also broke with China. So at the point in which I was growing up in the early 80s to the late 80s, then communism changed, the regime changed in 1990, it was a very isolated country from which you couldn't travel. And it was also a very heavily indoctrinated country. The society life including children's life children's education was completely pervaded by state ideology often a form of i would call it marxist nationalist ideology on the one hand albania was considered to be the lighthouse of anti-imperialist struggles in the world and a model for all other small countries that wanted to resist these mighty empires that surrounded them but on the other hand it was also a very nationalist uh, country where it was very important to emphasize that it was Albanianism that made people and that made the party stronger, that made the state commit to the struggle against these big superpowers. Mm. So the idea that you were in a kind of underdog country, which was still fighting for freedom and which was still in some ways showing that you could have dignity even in, in being small, was really important to us, to me growing up, uh, surrounded by this state ideology. Other than that, so this was the kind of the more formal aspect, let's say, of political education and of ideology. Right. Life on the ground was very uh, restricted, was very scarce. You had queues everywhere. This was not unusual in the whole communist bloc, but it was also, it was particularly extreme in Albania because it was so isolated. There wasn't really a lot of commerce. There wasn't a lot of trade with other communist countries. So it was, it was a small country. I mean, it's important to emphasize that. It was a very small country. So, yeah, three and a half million um, inhabitants. So it was very, very small and very isolated. And economically, it was quite hard because, as I say, you couldn't find everything. It was a society run through central planning. So no, no markets, no private property. There were no cars. Um, there were just, you know, 
people buying things on the state shops and everything was owned by the state. There wasn't really even any small kind of private enterprise. Mm. Um, basically, no aspect of life really was commodified in the way in which you would know it in kind of market economies. In the way in which it was different, even with Yugoslavia, for example, Yugoslavia had more of a market and, and more of a kind of socialist market economy, whereas Albania was really top-down run. Sometimes it's, it seems like when you talk about a country like Albania at that particular moment, it seems like you're talking about something that would be unrecognizable to most people today, most Albanians today as well, actually. But in some ways, you, you write in the book that it was quite, um, not idyllic, perhaps, but I mean, the life of growing up on the Mediterranean was something that I think a lot of people who grew up on the Mediterranean would recognize. I think the part of it that I maybe come across as nostalgic from reading the book is that it was a childhood that was very secure, that was very safe. So it, society was extremely homogeneous. Everybody looked after everybody else. The people, children were taken care of, not just by the parents, but also by relatives, by neighbors, the school system, the teachers, it's kind of nurseries and so on. So as a child, as someone who didn't really have to have political opinions, because children don't usually have political views, you didn't really suffer censorship and you didn't really know about what was going on on the ground in terms of political oppression because mm. as a child, you just worry about your immediate surroundings and your immediate environment. And so in, from that point of view, it was a very, very free society in a way in which it's not, no longer, you know, you couldn't be run over by the car because there weren't any and you could just play in the streets. There was no concerns that strangers would kidnap you or whatever. And mm. so it was a very, very protected, very sheltered environment for a child and that's perhaps the part that when you discuss it from the point of view of now mm. it's very very different also for children in albania and that maybe comes across as being more as feeling more nostalgic and when you look back on the hoja government now as an, as an adult and of course as a professor of political theory how was the reality of its rule different to what you believed it was growing up oh i think it was the exact opposite i mean i would i believe this was the free society in the world in which there were sacrifices that were made in the name of freedom but in which everybody was actually committed to this freedom and believed in it and part of the story that i tell in the book is that not only this was not the case but it wasn't the case even with the people that were closest to me like my family who had a very very different take on the regime and um, i was only sheltered from their take because they concealed things from me about who they were and about their relationship to the government about their past as dissidents about the fact that the family had been persecuted for decades and for, with repercussions on several generations. So when you think about it now, with the knowledge that they had, it's the exact opposite of the rhetoric and of what was being said about that society and what I believe to be true about it was what actually was the case was the exact opposite. It was very uh, oppressive politically with no margins of dissent, with no tolerance of individuality and with no margins of really participation and democratic freedom in the way in which you would ordinarily understand it. The, the regime itself, did it explain itself in terms of being free? You say you experienced it as one of the freest societies. Did the regime explicitly say that it was one of the freest societies? Yes, it was the rhetoric of we fight for our freedom, which in that case meant also freedom from outside rule and from the interference of other powers. And so this idea that Albania was alone fighting the good fight of communism against both the, those who had never been communists, like, you know, capitalist liberal societies, but also those who had been communists and then at some point had deviated, becoming more moderate, more revisionist, more like sellouts, 
this was very important to the self-understanding of the nation and to the official state propaganda that was then replicated and reflected on education and the way in which children would then learn these lessons was mm. pervaded by this state propaganda. And so this message that we protected our freedom at a cost, because the cost was very hard to conceal. You couldn't say, you know, it was obvious that there was scarcity. It was obvious that some goods that were available to other people outside Albania just weren't available in Albania. We collected as children chewing gum wrapping paper because we didn't have chewing gum or we um, idealized. I have this chapter in the book and so I talk about Coca-Cola and Coca-Cola cans and people collected these things and displayed them in their homes. These were all symbols of a kind of social status that people could only access outside Albania. These goods that they were in the West, they just circulated freely and you could find them everywhere. In Albania, you could find them nowhere. And that's why they became really important because they were scarce. So you couldn't conceal that. But what you could do was to explain that by talking about the fact that this is what it took to protect freedom. And this is what it took to protect the form of democracy that the Albanian nation had ended up creating with the help of the Communist Party and with the help of um, Enver Hoxha. And that's mm. the dimension in which this is how you would interpret what was going on. That was the, the freedom aspect I found very interesting because it's interesting to me how many regimes talk the language of freedom. And I think sometimes that's a reflection of their desire to try to be seen in the way that, for example, the Americans see themselves as a free society. But it sounds like what you were saying is that the notion of freedom the Albanians had and the notion of freedom that the regime propagated is a different notion of freedom to the one that Americans would understand today. Americans understand freedom today, not necessarily to mean freedom from oppression. That's a historical part. They understand it to mean freedom to behave as they wish within their own societies. In the Albanian context, it sounds as if you're saying that the Hoxha regime ex explained freedom as the freedom for us to be free. Yeah. Not for you individually to be free as you wish. Yeah, absolutely. And the way in which you were individually free was by participating in this wider social ethos. I think the way, the, the reason the discourse on freedom was used in that way and the reason it was it shaped state ideology in that way, I think had a lot to do with this kind of imperial past of the country. So this is a recent nation. So it's not just down to communist ideologies, obviously it plays an important role as well. Mm. But I think historically... This was a recent state that emerges, and that's maybe where the comparison also is with the Middle East, that emerges from the ashes of the Ottoman Empire and mm -hmm. becomes independent as the Ottoman Empire completely collapses and the world, you know, it becomes a world, the Balkans become a world of nation states in the Balkans where each of the countries has to find their uh, identity. And so the, the way in which the Albanian national myth gets created is by saying, let's recover this homogeneous, ethnically defined unit that is Albania and Albanianism and what makes it distinctive. And let's look for a narrative in history, which is one of progressive liberation from these imperial powers that oppress it. And so first it's the Ottoman Empire, then it's the great powers who all have a role in the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, in the scrambling up of the kind of, in the dividing the, the pieces after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. Then it has a history of fascist and Nazi occupation, and then this contorted, difficult relationship with the Soviet Union and with China. So, uh, when I was growing up in the 80s, the, the discourse with which I was growing up was the result of all this national building narrative that had found in isolated moments of the history of the country pieces that it could put together to try and reaffirm its autonomy and the finding of its dignity in this defense of freedom.
It's fascinating. I mean, you've brought up the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. Of course, Albania came out of um, the collapse of that particular empire, which, as you say, has had a huge impact on all these states in the Middle East and still continues up to this very day. I wonder sometimes how differently all of these states which emerge from the same empire have had to grapple with that idea of national freedom. I mean, of course, we are all familiar with the discourse of pan-Arabism that came out of it. That was something that impacted a very wide part of the Middle East and then by proxy, you know, because of the strategic importance of the Middle East, the rest of the world. But you also had that in, in smaller countries across the Balkans where they had to grapple with these ideas of identity kind of on their own in isolation. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes with conflicts that they were inheriting already from the Ottoman period, because one of the things about the Ottoman period is, of course, there was this homogeneous unit that was the Ottoman Empire, but we know that inside it was extremely fragmented and there were these power struggles and conflicts and different um, territories that were in um, competition with each other and often also with, in competition with the imperial center. So the, the, the problem is that while you have the empire, you have this overarching unit that somehow keeps it all together and all within it. And when that power is no longer there, then whatever is there becomes at the mercy of something else, of other great powers that are outside it. And so at some point in the early 20th century in Albanian history, you have the Italians, you have the Austro-Hungarians, you have the Brits, you have the French, you have the Russians, you have all these other superpowers around it, which were all contended for, for contending for influence in particular parts of the country or for trying to annex particular parts of the country to some other area on which they have an influence. And that's where the discourse, the kind of national identity discourse gets mobilized by, again, ruling elites that, at least in Albanian history, up to that point had been extremely loyal to the empire, to the Ottoman Empire. And it's only when they realize, and e indeed, even in, their, in the late 19th century, where the kind of Albanian national discourse begins to emerge and gets articulated more explicitly, it gets articulated as a discourse of ethnic distinctiveness, but within this general overarching unit that is the empire. And it only becomes this sort of demand to then connect nationality with the state, with state building, only becomes explicit when the empire is clear that it's not going to survive. So before that, if you read all these founding fathers of the Albanian, or what were then considered during the communist period, the founding fathers of the Albanian nation, the demand was often for autonomy within the empire because the idea was that the Albanians can't walk it alone. They need a protector and they need some general superpower that can kind of look after them. Right. And then afterwards, it becomes a question of, well, now we know that this is not going to resist, that it's, it's, being, it's collapsing and it's under pressure from all sides. And so when that unit is no longer there, how are we going to defend ourselves given that there's the Serbs and the Greeks and the, uh, the Italians with which we share the... Adriatic Sea, and that becomes then the unit, the, the question for for political elites. This is a question that was that the elites were grappling with before the collapse. I mean, there was a long period where it was pretty obvious the collapse was coming. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was a period in which it wasn't clear. It was clear that the collapse was coming, but it wasn't clear what would be left of the empire. So it's right. possible that it was a chunk of it. It's possible that it would become something different. It's possible that it would be just, you know, it would retain its influence on the Balkans or on one side, one part of the Balkans, given that other states were becoming independent before Albania. It's only when the Ottoman Empire becomes modern Turkey that it yeah. becomes obvious that this is because then modern Turkey also takes a nationalistic form. It also ends up being a nation state. And, you know, we know the history of the population exchanges and the conflict. Yeah, yeah conflicts with Greece and so on. So at that point, the burden is then on all these smaller countries like Albania or the smaller groups of people like the Albanians 
to then have a proper nation building discourse. And that's where this narrative of freedom gets mobilized already by these pre-war elites to try and talk about, you know, the dignity of a nation, the why we need a nation, what is what makes us distinctive as a people. Yeah. Often also coupled with a narrative, and I don't know how many overlaps this has with other parts of the you know, former Ottoman Empire territories, often coupled with a narrative of backwardness compared to other great powers in Europe. So there is this constant difficult relationship with European core, let's say, where they say, well, you know, the French or the Brits or the, uh, the Germans are more advanced, they have industry, they have commerce, they have these relations, they have um, civilization. And we are the ones that need to somehow catch up. So the civilizational discourse, which was already important, I think, in the relationship with the Ottoman Empire, makes its way then into these little units that emerge from the Ottoman Empire, where they see themselves in a position of somewhat inferiority compared to these great centers. You're saying that they saw themselves in a position of inferiority compared to the great centers or also in comparison to some of the countries that surrounded them? I think with the countries that surrounded them, it was more of a narrative of competition. So it was a question of territory and boundaries and language and cultural autonom autonomies, for example. Um, to some extent, yes, it, it might be, it might have been part of the discourse. And in fact, it was part of the discourse that to say, you know, the Greeks got there earlier and the, the Serbs have their state and we are the last one. We don't have our state yet because this really is one of the units that becomes independent quite late in 1912. Yeah. But yeah, I think the, the hierarchy is mostly with these centers of civilization with Britain and France and Austria and Austro-Hungary, because that's also where the elites get educated. That's where they study. Right. That's where they go uh, right, to school right. and so on. So especially yeah. France, that was really important reference point at that stage. I find, I mean, we're jumping around a lot, but that's the nature of these conversations because they, they sort of take really interesting turns. So I'll come back to Albania and the collapse of communism. But I wanted to just, since we're on the subject about the perception of Albanians pre-Ottoman collapse. I was having this conversation with our multimedia producer. Do you think the, the Albanians actually, as a uh, as a unit within the Ottoman Empire, they did quite well out of the Ottoman Empire experience? I mean, they served very high yeah. ranks. Yeah, of course. I mean, they were very well. So there's two stories there, obviously. There's a story of the elites, and then there's a story of the people on the ground. Hmm. Um, I think in terms of general education and general development, so ur urban development, commerce and so on, it, and if you think of it as, as an, a question of access, equal access, like say, let's say to these opportunities, this wasn't the case because the country at the point in which it became independent, if you look at the indicators of you know, how educated were people, could they read and write, were there roads on which they could write, was there central power, was it an administration, none yeah. of these really was there. So it was extremely underdeveloped from that just simple modernization perspective. Right. Part, right. I think the reason it had been that was that some of these elites were so well integrated in the Ottoman Empire. And in fact, I've been reading recently for my next book project, the memoirs of uh, Ismail Cemali, who is one of the oh, main figures in declaring cool. Albanian independence. Hmm. And what he said, and, and you can really see, and in fact, this memoir wasn't published at all in communist Albania, because what you see even though he was really important in history books as the man who declared independence from the empire, who was the founding father of the Albanian modern state and was in you know, every, uh, every photograph for children. It was really important. If you read his memoir, you read that up to the point in which Albania became independent, he really was just a man of the empire. So he was an example of these extremely integrated elites who writes about their own life as not a life situated in Albania. Of course, his birthplace is Albania. Right. But then he around the, to the center of the empire. Istanbul, yeah. he goes to Salonika, he then goes to the Danube, he's running the Danube, he's running 
so the, the territories in which he's posted just don't overlap with the territory of the Albanian nation state as we've known it. And it's very clear in his self-understanding that up to this stage, he was an, a, a person who was representing this unit that doesn't exist anymore. Right. They managed a lot. I mean, this happened also following the collapse of, of communism. The people who were absolutely part of the communist machine, and as yeah. before, they're absolutely part of the Ottoman machine, they somehow managed to flip within a very short space of time, ideologically flip and start to say, okay, we need to nation states in the case of Ottomanism. Yeah, I think, and I mean, in a way, that's not that surprising because I think they identify with themselves with a structure that rules. Mm. And and then you can just put on that ruling structure whatever content in a way they are the civil servants they're the people who keep the structure going regardless of what's going on in terms of ideology and of what in the name of what principles does this structure rule but so they created it i mean to some degree it wasn't shamali wasn't simply um moving from one structure to another he was creating a new structure yeah absolutely no they were creating this structure, but th these are the people that can create it because these are the ones with the skills and the knowledge to be able to mediate between these two these two different spaces right so they know the right. kind of context they have local loyalty another example of that is uh, king zogs the albanian king from um, now last part of the um, late 1920s let's say until 1939 when the fascists invade albania He's a self-declared king, but before he's a king, he's a politician. And before he's a politician, he's a local ruler. So he's someone who is just commanding the loyalty of a number of men in this kind of mountainous Albania of Mat, and who can exercise then authority in the name of the state because he can command loyalty on these groups of people that are completely scattered and not at all attracted by the rhetoric of the state or by the logic of the state. And there... They can do this job, I think, because they're in this position of intermediaries. They understand the constraints of the new that needs to be created, but they also have links with the old and they can then make it work on the ground, basically. You, you obviously have a deep interest in these moments of flux. I mean, having lived through one, is that something that you think is really that you find very politically intriguing about how when you move from one regime to a new regime, how quickly the pieces get reassembled? Yeah, but I think it's also because I'm very interested in the human element of rule. In some ways, we used to think of laws and rules and structures as these very abstract um, units in a way. And, you, you know, you talk about principles and you talk about values and you talk about socialism or capitalism. But I'm also very interested also in what, who makes these things then real on the ground? How do they go from being these abstract principles that are written in philosophical books or in historical books or in constitutions? To then being to then creating the set of concrete rules that people live by and how do they then make it work given the different circumstances and so there is a kind of generality of the rule and then there is a sort of specificity of the people and the question is how do these two things come together and how do people make history with these general guidelines but then always in concrete circumstances and that really fascinates me the fact that it's often the same people, you know, if you think about yeah, it. It's often the same people. And sometimes, I mean, you, you multiply it across generations. It ends up being the same people, you know, the, the descendants of them four generations oh, later. Exactly. So often it's the same elites as well, right? So it's mm. very rare that you actually see a real complete generational. Uh, and this is some, sometimes also a question of uh, uh, an issue of resentment and grievance in these societies that you don't, that you change the rule and you change the system and you change the constitution. And people say, but the people are still there and the elites who benefit are still there. And I think that's, again, historically, maybe often the case, especially yeah. when you don't have a transition that is very abrupt and very violent or that comes with kind of completely getting rid of all the previous class. Then 
if you have some elite that gets reproduced in the transition, that's even more the case because they are the ones that then have a legacy and that leave the legacy on the next generation. It's an underexplored part, I think, of of political change about how elites manage to to replicate themselves from one regime to the another. Um, you know, we often tend to focus on what happens at the very top, but if you go down two levels you find that it is exactly the same people and they've managed to just somehow replicate themselves, replicate their rule. Yeah, exactly. And then, I mean, in some ways that also shows you how a lot of people just get by, by convention and by habit, right? They don't really... <laughs> the convention not, of being rich and ruling. Well, yeah, or they're not there because they're convinced of any kind of great truth in a way. And that's also why, what really fascinates me is how ideology works and how it gets reproduced in this very ordinary, they're very banal way. You don't, you know, it doesn't have to do a lot of work. You just, you need to kind of have a, a large mass of people just getting by with certain things that enable them to get by. And they don't need to question that very, very long and very far and very deep to just mm. kind of do the things that they've been always doing, which is why I find I'm very interested then in these questions of revolution and transition and how you kind of move from one system to the other and what you need to mobilize. And mm. We'll come back to some of that. I want to keep going with your story because we get to the 1990s, we get to 1990 and the regime collapses. And this is part of a wider collapse of communism across Eastern Europe. Now that particular story is often told as a moment of liberation, as a triumph of liberal democracy, um, freedom over oppression. But that wasn't how you experienced it. Yeah, and in fact, some in some ways, the story that I tell the, in the book is really a generational perspective on the transition. And it's a very distinctive generational take because this is a generation of people who have grown up under communism, but as I said, without having experienced firsthand political oppression and censorship. And so mm. what they know about the oppressive side of communism comes from what they've been told by their parents and by their grandparents. And what they have experienced themselves is this kind of childhoods in which people are just doing stuff and like moving around freely more or less within that bounded society and with this if you were lucky enough to have a kind of loving family and parents with jobs as they most people had a job in Albania of one sort or another so if you weren't in some margin in some disaster in some area of the country that was suffering or if you were in a town like mine which is a main one of the main cities then you would have these memories of your childhood that wouldn't be the same as your parents who would be much more aware of the oppression and what they had to the cost of them complying and the cost of them being in some ways accepting of the regime so the, the generational perspective is really interesting because you have this generation of people who have had this childhood under communism and then communism falls for reasons that are only in some ways clear to their parents and which they understand as mediated by their parents and by their grandparents. And then you have these years of transition, which were extremely hard for these societies. They were years of a lot of emigration, mass emigration, sometimes really in tragic circumstances. In Albania, it was in the beginning mostly illegal emigration which took the form of people going and being on dinghy boats and sometimes losing their lives and having this kind of tragic accidents uh, with a huge human cost it was a life of people losing their jobs because of unemployment because of the structural reforms and the privatization of the state enterprises which leave a lot of people without opportunities and then make them vulnerable to all kinds of dark businesses and traffics and so there's the rise of tra sex trafficking or drug dealing drug smuggling all of these things begin to emerge and they're just considered like any other job in a way, what people need to do to survive. And it's also extremely, if you're a teenager and if you're especially a teenage girl, it's extremely constrained also because it becomes extremely unsafe because you have all these other 
questions going on. You know, it's unsafe for women to be outside on their own without being harassed or you kind of um, there, there is sexual sexual assault. Then you get told you can't go out of the house after a certain hour. Or you can't wear a certain kind of thing because it's just dangerous. So for me, from the point of view of someone who grows up as a teenage girl in this period, you get told by your parents, now it's your time. Now you have the opportunities. Now you have all the freedoms that we have dreamt of. But to you, it doesn't feel freedom at all. It just feels like very, very dark and very constraining. But somehow you can't even say it because right, because you know, <laughs> exactly. someone who's this ingrateful person. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Of course, there is this, these are there are these difficulties, but this is nothing compared to your ancestors who were killed in prison and who were tortured in prison and who lost their lives because they wanted these freedoms that you are now being somehow superior about. So, or or not or dismissive or not really understanding the importance of. So the book really is this kind of trying to to get across this generation perspective, and sometimes it becomes criticized, especially in Albania or in these contexts, for this reason, because it's a particular take on how it felt to live under communism as a child and to live in these first years of transition as a teenager. And to say that this also came with a cost and that freedom didn't look like the kind of freedom that had been promised that would arrive for everyone and that you would enjoy immediately. Can I ask if you think that there's a parallel between your experience of that as a teenager and your experience now um as a mother living in a in a country that you weren't born into um i mean i don't know because i think i'm now as as a sort of first personal experience it's for me not an experience of constraint because i am now in a position of being in in a, in a main city in a country that is wealthy and rich and being part of the elite of that country so i'm not really experiencing the oppression in the way in which i experienced it and I don't think my children are experiencing the oppression. It's in fact, it's sometimes it's difficult for me to explain to them that look, we are privileged and we are, you know, we have parents who have jobs and who, have, who are part of the elite in some way, and you're enjoying the benefits of the elite. But if you, we live in West London, if you just get out of the part of London where we are in Acton, you go one way and you go to Knightsbridge, where it is a kind of capitalist dream, but you go another way and you end up in Willesden Junction or Willesden Green, and it's actually much more severely deprived, and you see there is this anomie and there is a sense of alienation that you perceive immediately just going on the public buses or just looking outside the road or just looking at the quality of housing or the way in which people live it's full of betting shops you can see people are making ends meet in in ways that are very very different from ours so it's in some ways it's for isn't me, that the, the sort of the same thing that your parents, you're trying to explain to your kids that these are opportunities that you have. You're very lucky. There are other people just down the road who perhaps don't have those opportunities. Well, and, but, and those those yeah, things yeah. Are, are confined in space. But with your parents, they were trying to explain it to you where those things were confined in time, yeah, where they're yeah, saying just, yeah, yeah. 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 I see what you mean. Yeah, no, exactly. So maybe in, in that sense, it is true. But in, in the case of my parents, it was like, you know, this is not delivering for you, maybe, or you don't see it as delivering for you because, uh, you know, because you're being blinded to how many benefits you have that you're not enjoying. Whereas what I try to tell my kids is actually it's delivering for you, but it may not be delivering for a lot of other people. And you're right. In some ways, in my parents, it's a sense of missed opportunity of a generation that is now gone and will never be able to enjoy those opportunities. In my case, it's a question of telling my children, look, there's a whole range of people out there that just don't have the same opportunities as you do. And it's not clear that they will in this system. But it seems to be, I, I don't want to dwell too much on it. I just think it's very interesting that essentially it is a version of saying to your kids, make the most of these opportunities. And it was very, very similar to your parents as saying the opportunity of the freedom has now presented itself. Well, 
yeah, okay, but I want to resist that because I think my parents really weren't really, so I was, I had a sense of criticism of the society in which I was growing up. And my parents were saying, look, you're being critical, but you have no reason to be critical. Whereas mm. what I try to encourage my children is to think, to say, look, you're not being critical enough because you only right, see right. your point of view. Right. And you're seeing how if you were someone else or if you're in someone else's family, you just wouldn't have these opportunities, you know. Here, you only get, I don't know, you, you get, uh, you can do a club or you can do, you can take up hobbies or you can exercise your talents only if you have the means to do so. If you can't, if you don't have the means, someone who is not rich doesn't, he can't have piano lessons or he can't do, you know, practice sport and all these things. And all of that constrains who you are and what you become. But somehow rich children or the children of the elite take that for granted. And it's very hard to say to them, look, it, there is another way from which you can see the world, which is not your point of view. You're only enjoying the benefits that you have, but there's other people out there who don't have these benefits. Mm. You you seem to have a good sense of uh, surrealism and of the absurd, and I guess that's partly because you you know you grow up seeing things that you subsequently maybe even at the time like of this this talk about the statue of Stalin that you see something that is incredibly surreal. Um, but you also seem to think that there was a surrealism in that transition to capitalism. And even sometimes in the country that you live in now, the UK, I wonder if you think that that was a result of your upbringing, that you're able to recognize some of the absurdities and the contradictions in the society in which you find yourself. I think maybe that may be the case, because I also when I talk to people from Eastern Europe, they often also notice these contradictions. The problem is sometimes it, you notice the contradiction and what you see is really the gap between ideology and reality, where you, you get told you live in a society that prizes freedom. But then you see the way in which, for example, that society treats people at the border or what it decides to do with illegal immigrants, for example. And you think, well, this is not how I understood or this is not how I think about freedom or how I think. So you realize that the, uh, the universal value of these things that is often being applauded and mentioned, and it's really part of the rhetoric of you think about the European Union, think about Britain or just in, in the world in which with the United States, this rhetoric of civilization, of human rights, this world of freedom and democracy that some countries have and that other countries need to create. I think once you've somehow seen how ideology works, maybe you're more alert to the way in which this could also be part of an ideological discourse that sometimes is obviously reflected in reality, but many in many other cases, it also just doesn't reflect. It's not there. You know, you see you see double standards, you notice them, and you notice how deals get made with corrupt governments. And even though there is this rhetoric of freedom and democracy and human rights and um, the importance of accountability to the people. So you really, you live in this world where, as I say, you're able to maybe spot better the difference between ideology and, and values. And I think a lot of people from Eastern Europe have that experience. The only problem is that that experience then makes them really cynical almost and nihilistic about the world in which they live because they don't believe in anything they're like they say well of course they are going to say that of course the elites are going to pretend that this is a free society and of course you have this ideology that tells you you live in a free society but we know it's not like that and it can never be anything different i wanted to talk a bit about uh, freedom and authoritarianism you once said that the feeling of skepticism about the truth revealed after a great lie has never really left me yeah, and yeah. I think that's because you were a true believer before, and yeah. then I guess it must have been very personally destabilizing for you, traumatic actually, to find out that this structure that you've been led to believe was in fact false. Well, yeah, I mean, at the moment, I think, and when I look at my diaries that I was keeping from the, that time, I think what I recorded in the diaries was not so much trauma as in feeling personally hurt that I'd been lied to, or because there wasn't a kind of 
people know when they present this question to me, this, it has a kind of emotional undertone, which I don't think it had for me at the time. It really was like being told, being taught a new language. So you were in this language, you were in this system in which symbols denoted certain things and concepts meant one thing. And then we call this, this, and we call it's like, you're almost learning a, how you, you're naming things for the first time. And then you're told from one almost overnight, you're told actually all of these names that you had for things, they're now different. You have different names and you have different categories and different ways of making sense of the world. And I think that played a role when I thought about it afterwards, it played a role in my choice to study philosophy because a lot of philosophy really is about the relationship between appearances and reality. So you're trying, or mm, appearance mm. essences, where you're trying to see what things look to you like, and then you realize that they can be deceptive in many ways. So one of the tropes in philosophical thinking is this, you know, Cartesian, Descartes and the methodological philosophical doubt where you say, I start doubting everything around me. I realize that the senses can sometimes be illusionary, that there are these optical illusions, something seems far and is actually quite close or, or something seems big and it's actually quite small or, or, or the other way around. And so you begin to kind of scratch the surface of appearances as mediated by what you the way in which you've always understood reality through the senses or language. And then what are you left with? You're just left with this kind of philosophical doubt. And at one point, Descartes has this thought where he talks about the evil genius. He says, what if there is an evil genius that is just lying to me and calling things for, for me in this way and convinces me that, you know, this is truth and this is what essences are and this is what thinking is. And I think it's a bit like if you've contemplated this thought of the evil genius, it's really hard to shake it. And it's almost as though that became reality for me, the moment in which I was told by my parents, look, you thought you were in this society where everything was free and served a higher purpose and you were part of this machine that was working to promote these higher purposes. But actually none of these higher purposes were higher purposes. It was extremely oppressive. It was really uh, tragic and, and yeah. bloody. And once you've encountered the evil genius in that form, it's really hard afterwards that, to, to believe because you think, well, what if, what if some other day I get told all of these things that I'm seeing with my eyes have actually, there's a different way of telling the story. Yeah. And all and the of people I think I'm experiencing is actually just not there. And that's a, a kind of fundamentally skeptical doubt that is so hard to get rid of and to be convinced that what you're experiencing now, this is true freedom. Yeah. And the people who are, who are building up the edifice of these lies are the people closest to you. Right, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, and that's always often the case, right? Because the reality, reality is constructed for you by the people that are closest to you and by the surroundings, by the work environment, by, you know, family network, friends, colleagues, political structures, society more generally. So we're embedded in these structures and we don't really question them unless, as I say, there is a fundamental reason for questioning them, at which point when there is that revolution in thinking, then everything is really different. And so how do you know that it's that that is the reality and what you've left behind is just this mistaken view of the world i mean i i do think that yeah i do think that must be very traumatic not merely destabilizing on a political level but there must be a trauma attached to it and i wonder if I, i've often made this analogy in my own mind about the trauma of having the political structure collapse and what the years of turbulence that follow on from that. And I think you do see a parallel in the post-communist world as you do in the Middle East, 
yeah. that when these countries, when the ideologies of these countries collapse, it doesn't change overnight. I know we talked about elites finding their way through in the new regime, yeah. but for most people, I imagine it takes a while to adjust to this new reality. Years, yeah. maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And I think it's also partly why the book my book, for example, is resonating now in a way in which it wouldn't have resonated 30 years ago, because you have to have had this passage of time in between and to see that all the things that you were told, you know, this is going to work when it happens, when it's created, when these structures are created, when there is a revolution and everything in you, there is also the hope that all of these new structures that you've created are going to deliver. And then you need time to see that why they're not working and what are the cracks in the system and how can you fix those cracks and also how can you create the discourses that enable you to challenge these cracks because you can have a crisis, but if you don't have the conceptual tools to articulate that crisis, and if you don't have the discourse, and if you don't, don't have the words to be able to speak about it, then you can't really, it just stays there. It's kind of dark, but you mm. don't, you can't articulate it even. And so, unsurprising, yeah, sorry. Sorry, no, Cairo. No, I was going to say, and unsurprisingly, you tend to reach for things that seem more certain. So in your case, I guess you reach for philosophy in the Middle East. A lot of the times people reach for religion. They mm. look for something that they can say, this at least is stable. Absolutely. This is the thing that I can be certain of when all around me is in flux. Exactly. And I think that's also what explains maybe why you also experience this kind of rise of conservative thinking in these moments of crisis, because mm. that's another way of bringing safety, bringing certainty, bringing solidity to people's lives is by just bringing this past and saying to them, look, look this is why in some ways nostalgia for the past becomes then politically salient in the present, not because it's nostalgia, not because it's the past, but because that's the moment of comfort. Even if there was crisis, even if there was difficulties, you know it and you can control it because you know it, you know how it played, you know where you were, who you were in that position, what you did and so on. And I think that's the appeal of all this theories that go back in some ways to nostalgia to the past to kind of yeah evoking some myth of stability in particularly uh, crisis circumstances i mean you and you have the the conservative element coming through as you've said but i mean you've given a real life example of what that was that this and this attempt to control uh where you as a teenage girl were going was partly because they were worried about the physical safety yeah. and you see the ramifications of that um in in middle eastern countries or in other countries as well that go through this flux there's a there's a return to these conservative values because to some degree they are trying to to safeguard yeah. the the family structure uh, the societal structure and they do that through the um, the limiting of the spaces for women yeah and the more the state fails i think to provide these safeties and these guarantees and there, the less there are public spaces the less there are public discourses and alternatives that can even enable people to articulate a different way of being safe and finding these securities, the more then I think you see the rise of these alternative authorities like the family or the family structure or those who then kind of police individual lives in an effort to take control of a space in which the state basically fails. Mm. Do you, we were talking about trauma, do you recognize that trauma elsewhere? Because it strikes me that there's a similar dynamic, similar um, played out, for example, in Western countries like in America today, where you see a generation that came of age, you know, over the 2000s, they were raised with certain pre the collapse, the financial collapse, raised with certain assumptions about the country, about their place in the world, about what their future would look like in particular. And yeah. then when that is taken away post the financial collapse, you see increasing numbers of, of people, young Americans, young Brits, they come to believe that they were in essence like lied to. 
Yeah, and I think that is also why, in some ways, what explains the fact that in these countries as well, there is a rise of authoritarianism and of kind of what people call right-wing populism or conservative discourses that, again, try to offer this comfort of the past and this alternative authorities that can shelter people from the insecurities of the globalized world, as they put it. And this all happens in the aftermath of the financial crisis because it's in some ways a collapse of a particular discourse both to do with the values, the values of the sort of liberal world and the globalized world in which we're all making progress and we're all going forward, and also reckoning with the people who fall behind and who actually don't manage to enjoy these benefits in, the, in, in sort of equal ways. So I think that explains also why you have this sense of the left behind are then mobilized politically by these forces that we now also find problematic, but who I think are able to mobilize them in part because of these fears to do with the crisis that they've experienced and this generational perspective on that. Mm. A lot of what you are writing about is in some way political, which I guess you know makes sense given your intellectual interests. But I wonder why you decided to explore those questions through a memoir rather than you know perhaps a traditional work of political theory. Yeah, I didn't set out to write a memoir, actually. I was going to write a sort of book for the wider public on the ideas of freedom in the liberal and in the socialist tradition. And I, have, I had always had this sense of detachment in some ways from the ideologies that I was surrounded by. So I was always, even in my work as a political theorist, you know, usually academia is very liberal, left-leaning, but I always had a certain degree of suspicions also of the sort of liberal standard discourses around freedom and equal opportunities and so on. So I had this sense of skepticism, which I think partly comes from this story that we were talking about earlier of being told once that this truth is actually a lie. And then afterwards, every truth you get said, told this is a truth, you sort of tend to have inherently this skeptical perspective. But I didn't set out to write a memoir. I started to write this book about how I thought we should think about freedom more in the abstract and more as something that is packed with a sense of with a set of moral assumptions that aren't necessarily reducible to the ideologies that instrumentalize these moral assumptions, like whether it's liberal or socialist or whatever, and then try to write about it in a way that brought examples. And the examples that I was thinking about all came from my life in Albania and from what it meant to have lived under communism in Albania and then afterwards in this sort of liberal transition. And so it was a slow gradual process of putting together in some ways the philosophy and the ideas, the theoretical ideas with the lived experience. And then it turned into a memoir because that was the most effective way of telling this story that was in some ways a coming of age story for an individual, but it was also a coming of age story for a country that tries to reckon with the same ideas and with the same ideological conflicts and that also tries to navigate the crisis in which it finds itself in the present. I was having a conversation about the book with uh, one of our other editors, and she was saying to me that she was fascinated to read how you captured the childhood experience so well, so that it felt like um, like you were seeing things through the eyes of the child, and that even when that changed, you know, we get to know we get to know Leah as the teenager, but then also as the child. Yeah, um, yeah. And I, I think she was wondering why, what drove the decision for you to write it from from inside your experiences rather than, for example, with the distance of time? Yeah, I thought that was, I wanted people to experience what it, le what it meant to live under this ideology. And to live in an ideology is to live in a lie that you have no reason to question for, for as long as you're being told the lie. And I wanted, in a way, the reader to kind of experience that lie and to get to the point in which they made the discoveries at the same time as the main character in the book. So it was 
if I had started by saying this is what my family is and this is how I so if I had started by already in some ways giving away what I found out about my family, the reader wouldn't have been able to come on this journey of discovery as I saw it. Whereas if I had stuck to the kind of child perspective, then you could discover slowly the truths, but you would make the discoveries at the same time as a child. And then you would really also experience firsthand what it means to think you're free, but then to also realize that it could actually all be an ideology and a set of lies. You mention um, your family. And actually, you, you have some, you talk about this in the book, you have some very interesting relatives. This is part of the secrets, the post-communist secrets that you uncover. Um, you talk about your great-grandfather, Jafer Ipi, who was the former prime minister of Albania, and he was justice minister under the, the, the Italian protectorate. You described him as the Albanian Quisling, the national traitor, the class enemy, the deserving target of hatred and contempt in class discussions. And then you find out, post-communism, that he was one of your great-grandfathers. Yeah. And did, that, did that change the way you looked at him? Did it change the way you looked at the family? Yeah, it did. It changed a lot. I mean, because you are you grow up thinking that these are class enemies and then suddenly you discover that these class enemies are also all your family members and your relatives and the people that have been sort of raising you up and bringing you up and have switched and and given you these values. So, it it makes a big difference because I think it, in some ways I guess it made me much more generous towards people with very different viewpoints and that's something that I still I can still have. I don't find, you know, there's sometimes we feel that to like someone, we have to agree with them politically. And if you grow up in a family like mine, it's that is very hard for me. It's very hard to be that to be the case because I'm always in a minority. And in fact, most of my family doesn't share my politics, doesn't share my views. And but we still try to find ways of and starting with my mother, find ways of liking each other and finding overlaps in values. So in some ways it makes you much more tolerant of diversity, but in other ways, I think it makes you also more hopeful that you can reconcile these fundamental differences in ways in which maybe people who are used to being in political family bubbles, all of which are somehow overlapping, it's maybe harder for them to kind of get out of there. I had friends I remember in Italy who had never met anyone who was right wing. They were in this kind of left wing. Uh, middle class circles that I described towards the end of my book, and they just, well, they just have never met a fascist. And if you've grown up with someone who is a notorious fascist being a member of your family, you have to develop a different perspective on fascists, actually, because you have other dimensions of their relationship to them, which aren't just a political disagreement. You have to see their humanity in a way that goes beyond their politics. But I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that can also be a healthy thing, because it means that you can then be much more optimistic about political exchange and debate with people with whom you also fundamentally disagree. You have, it sounds like you have a complicated relationship with your family, but it feels like you also have a complicated relationship with Albania. Um, when you unveiled the book, this book free, you decided to do it at Hoja's former house in Tirana, in the capital Tirana. And you've said that that was because that was an intentional act of reclaiming that space. Yeah, it, it was. So uh, I was inspired by um, Dante, actually, by Inferno, where in, the, in Dante's hell, people get in hell the kind of, they, they get what's called in Italian, it's the legge del contrapasso. So it's the counter. So they get in death what they did in life, but in some subverted way. So I felt, you know, if there is hell and if Ember Hoja is in hell, the fact that someone from a family that he persecuted for decades talks about the left and left ideas in his house after 30 years of communism falling, this would be a good symbolic subversion and taking back 
ownership and sort of reasserting your agency in the aftermath of this generational trauma. But I think not everyone in Albania understood it that way. Some people thought, saw it as an effort to rehabilitate Hoja or to rehabilitate communism or to have a much more generous perspective. But at least this is how I saw it. And mm. but I think the, the part of the debate about the venue and the debate about the book promotion and who was there and who wasn't there, if it doesn't become just kind of petty, personalistic attacks, I think that also be a healthy way of reckoning with the past because sometimes the way in which we think about the past and the way in which we reconcile these divergences and reflect on historical injustice is exactly by appealing to symbols and by through art or through conversations that get started in ways that aren't immediately political, but that get to politics via some other way. And I think that maybe was a case, or at least in my kind of optimistic moments, I think, well, that wasn't necessarily a bad thing, even if there was a controversy about it, maybe it was a productive controversy. We talked. We touched on this before when we were talking about people having nostalgia for the past and this idea of that there are there's a limit to some of the progress that has been made, and particularly in Albania and a lot of these post-communist countries, the the improved quality of life that Albanians and other countries in Eastern Europe had been hoping for with capitalism and free market economy, that didn't really happen in the last 30 years. And I wonder if it didn't happen in Albania, certainly. I mean, the, the potential uh, of Albania to become you know, a more capitalist state hasn't really been borne out, has it? Well, I mean, I don't know. In some ways, it is a capitalist state. And so the thing about capitalism, if you read the Communist Manifesto, capitalism is a great modernizing force. So it does bring modernization. It brings uh, bring roads, it brings development, it brings investments and so on. It brings also a lot of inequality and a lot of immiseration. And there is a kind of human cost to it. And I think in some ways, I always, when I get asked about the situation of Albania right now, I say always that Albania went from being a country whose problems were just its problems because it was so isolated to being a country whose problems reflect the problems of the world. And I think, I mean, there is limits to capitalism and there is limits to how much capitalism and democracy can be reconciled. And some of these limits you can experience firsthand if you look at countries like Albania or in the Balkans more generally or in Eastern Europe more generally, where you see the relationship between economic and political power and where you see, you see the obstacles to democracy and to having a more equal idea of freedom. But I don't think that Albania or any of these countries really stand out in terms of, and this is where I think the narrative of corruption and transition can also be misleading because it's a narrative where you think there's a world of developed states for whom capitalism works. And then there's a world of kind of these states who are still trying to catch up and make it work for themselves, where in fact, I think the two are connected to each other. You have that because you have this and mm. it's very hard to have a unified development that delivers for everyone. I don't think that's possible within a capitalist model. You don't see that uh, interpretation, though, commonly in the in. I mean, most of the rest of the world has not been able to catch up to the rich countries of the West, even though they've attempted to. And I'm talking about it in a Middle Eastern context as well. And you don't often see that interpretation uh, made that the idea that because some countries are rich, inevitably, there are going to be some countries that have to be remain poor. Yeah, I think you see it, but only insofar as it's a reflection on history. So people will say to you things like, international law up to a certain point was basically the international law of the powerful states. But now you have democracy and you have human rights and you have a much more inclusive discourse. And I think that's just a mistake. I think the, the, the kind of international structures that we have are clear inheritors of the privileges of colonialism and of a model of globalization that was imposed by a small group of privileged states on the rest of the world. And the this division of power within the world that we have is also a result of that asymmetry. So I think 
you get you get a reflection on the limits of that but it's often a reflection that plays out as though it was just something that belongs to the past and it's not there anymore but i think in reality it's much more complex and if you scrutinize these structures and the way they connect the present and the past then you'll see that it's a it's much more difficult story to tell and that it's not the case that there has been this break ever at any point how do you interpret the nostalgia that you sometimes see in former communist countries for the communist period and you see it in albania too that people say well the last 30 years have not really worked out for us what weren't things better before we were more self-sufficient yeah i think in albania maybe to a lesser extent than other countries because i think the communism was so oppressive so it doesn't really take the form of nostalgia as in we're trying to go back to this model or we, we will go because this isn't working then we so it's not it's not a it's not a nostalgia that's politically productive in any way you don't really have a communist party you don't have any political groups that appeals to the past in way that in ways that would connect i actually I, I seem to remember there was something from vladimir putin who said something similar about the soviet union he said whoever doesn't miss the soviet union has no heart whoever wants it back has no brain and i think it's similar the kind of nostalgia that you find in these east european societies nostalgia for a sense of security and safety and knowing which roles people were playing and of course you had full employment and you had the state that was kind of guaranteeing basic goods and there was a sort of general sense of threshold sufficiency being there for everyone and you didn't have this massive inequalities and massive gaps that you see now you also didn't see this idealizing of wealth and status and this kind of desire to own brands and to own expensive goods that you find but probably also similar in the middle east actually but uh yeah so i think but it's not a nostalgia that i think can be mobilized politically it's as i say it's just a reflection on how on the current crisis and it's just a sentimental reaction to it yeah i mean you absolutely see the parallel uh, for nostalgia in the middle east of course i mean people talk about you know the the uh, the the monarchy period in uh, um in Egypt they talk even now about the Saddam Hussein regime in Iraq you know there's a tendency to say things are so much in flux i actually i'm going to end by going back to the beginning of this podcast and we were talking about how to some degree maybe you'd idealized your childhood in albania and i wonder if part of the reason why countries that have gone through flux look back and say it was better then is because in some countries there was a sense of stability and i wonder if in a democratic and capitalist country we get used to constant instability there's no stability of government because there's constant changes there's no real stability in capitalism people have to constantly work and i wonder if that is the reason that in some countries particularly rich countries people have gotten used to a kind of level of underlying instability and so they can't imagine what that world might be with it, without it Yeah. In some, yeah, in some other countries they they've experienced a certain level of stability and they want to go back to it. Yeah, the way I think about it though, when I think about the past is that although on the surface these look like stable societies, when you have societies with such high levels of scrutiny of individual lives from state structures, there is a kind of instability that comes from being being vulnerable to the just arbitrary uses of power. Mm. And so I think what you have is of course, you know, you had a job so there was a stability of a job but you didn't know who you could trust in terms of your neighbors you know was this person a spy or were they going to report on you or were they going to do something to you or was your employer so there is a sense in which you were at the mercy of bureaucracy rather than let's say the market and these i think are just different ways of thinking about power that articulate themselves differently and create different structures of oppression but they're problematic 
Yeah, they are, people often, when they talk about these, these pre-periods, both in the Middle East and elsewhere, they forget what daily life was actually like, that daily sense of being scrutinized, that daily sense of instability, that's that daily sense, frankly, of fear, of yeah. wondering whether Muhabarat are watching you, wondering whether you're going to be dragged off, wondering whether something that you said, you know, three months ago about the ruler is going to be pulled up in an interrogation next week. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That, absolutely, exactly. So I think there's a kind of instability that comes from political power being exercised in a certain way. And there's another type of instability that comes from economic power being exercised in a certain way where you just at the mercy of, you know, will I have my job or what will happen to the market? What will happen to my savings? What will happen to my income? And all of these are different forms of unfreedom, I think. Do you feel optimistic now? This is the final question. Do you feel optimistic now, having experienced both of these ways of organizing societies, that there is a way through it in terms of the 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 way that people organize societies and capitalist societies, do you think there is a way of taking away some of those unfreedoms? I think um, for me, I mean, so I'm I'm Gramscian on this. So I have this kind of pessimism of reason and optimism of the will. Basically, you can only be optimistic if you become engaged and you're an active citizen and you have a certain political perspective from which you derive a social critique. And from that because from that kind of the pessimism of reason is the idea that you have to be very, very critical of the society in which you live and to see what's not working in order to be able to rebuild and to, 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 to invest politically and to create the kind of energies that are needed to make a progressive change. But I don't think, I'm not optimistic as such. I think you can only be optimistic if you have the structures and the politics in place that enable you to have changes that are positive rather than regressive. Leia Peep, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. This has been The Lead, the New Lines magazine podcast. You can buy Leia's book, free, coming of age at the end of history, from all good bookshops and follow her on Twitter at Leia underscore Ippi. This week's episode was produced by Joshua Martin and Kristin Alhuli. It was hosted by me, Faisal Yafai. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favourite podcast app or visit our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us. <laughs>